0: welcome to the story forward podcast brought to you by the fine people behind story fort including my co-host christian Nguyen, director and the founder of story fort i of course and the other host larry rose that's right story forward so who do we
1: have on today little...
0: today uh this is the as we're sort of edging into uh mid-season we're in mid-season form here with a really nice, long interview of a guy I like to think of as a rock and roll renaissance man, Mr. John Roderick. No stranger to controversy, no stranger to local politics, no stranger to, um, I was gonna kind of try to figure out a clever way to say that he was King Neptune at the Seattle, let's see, fair in 2000. Uh, 2017, but I couldn't fold that in. Uh, anyways, I'll just go through um, I'll go through what John's done in his career, and then uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, my how I know John and, and how you know John, and and then we'll let John speak for himself. But yes, uh, he is a longtime veteran of the Seattle indie rock world. Uh, his most successful project was the Long Winters, uh, who put out three albums in the early 2010s before that he was in the western state hurricanes who were very quick buzz buzz very buzzy very short-lived band if you want to go to other podcasts and have john tell you the story about why they were so short-lived it's a pretty hilarious story that i don't remember we're recording this after the interview uh, if we touched on it at all during this particular interview but it involves him putting his feet up on Jonathan Poneman's table at Sub Pop and saying, let's talk Turkey. I think he did mention a bit of that. You mentioned that? Yes. So in the last 10 years, John's reinvented himself as a podcaster. And Actually, it's just a bunch of different things. You know, it's really, I find it fascinating the way he has managed to live a life within and without the mainstream and, you know, made himself a living and done i think podcasting for him came along just in time because he's a really epic storyteller uh just a few of the podcasts he's done still does roderick on the line with merlin mann uh the omnibus with ken jennings a man of considerable fame uh he does one now with his sister called road raids which you can find on his patreon uh that's patreon slash john roderick uh, like i said earlier he was king neptune in 2017 and the great part about that and you should google this he took it very seriously Titty.
1: this is that seafare, sea which is yes. a, exactly what it sounds like where they race hydroplane boats and put on parades and stuff like he had a trident i would imagine that he had right?
0: a i'm okay. not even sure if there's ever been another king neptune to tell you the truth
1: <laughs> he's kind of a big guy kind of a he's
0: a big guy. lumbering
1: guy i would say he's just, you know yeah
0: um he but in, in more serious man you know in 2010 he was a founding member of the Seattle Music Commission. In 2015, he did run for city council, and that was no joke. It was it was a serious thing. He got 16% of the vote. Uh, he came in third. Um, you know, and I, I wanted to talk a little about how I have met John. I've known him for 30 years. We're, God, we're old. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> but yes. so the funny thing is I met him temping at a brokerage uh, in downtown Seattle. And, um, We hit it off really well. He disappeared. And I've heard the story on a different podcast. He just decided one day he couldn't do it, and he didn't show up for work. But um, ever since then, he's sort of weaved in and out of my life. Um, He used to work at Steve's Broadway News on Capitol Hill, which was a newsstand. And we used to stand there and discuss how we were going to take over the world. And he came a lot closer than I did.
1: Yeah, he's pretty close and on several fronts. Yeah. yeah, we get into all that and maybe some of we the controversy get it. that maybe kind of tripped him up a little bit along the way. With his, he did. goes into it without with an unflinching look at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 if you came here because you want to hear about that, we do talk about it. Um, I wasn't sure that we were going to. I wanted to leave it up to him if he wanted to, and I found his take on it, you know, unflinching, and and he came out the other side. I think, and it seemed like he learned a lot. Um, some good things,
1: some uh, sobering things, right? And I don't do the tweeting very much, so I didn't know anything about this until you mentioned it. You are smart not to do the tweeting, <laughs> my friend. Uh, about your stuff, I know. I try to have some other people do that. We have somebody on the, our team, Mackenzie Heilman, who is our mm. social media person. So she is young and smart and can do this. <laughs> and more interested in it than, than i and uh but yeah so i became familiar with him right before covid hit um like i i didn't know the western state hurricanes back in the day i already moved out of seattle and for some reason they just were not on my radio on my radar or my radio but uh, i did i did know the you know the long winters i'd heard i've been listening to and they're they're pretty darn great and so i kind of didn't i just didn't know the name john roderick and then we went to a show at the Tractor Tavern, and it was packed in, right in, in February of 2020, right before lockdown. Yeah, that was and
0: definitely one of those. Uh, post a picture of yourself right before the pandemic where you have no idea what's going to happen
1: next. Uh, yeah, I took a few pictures we could post there. But that was a lot of fun, and we, you told me he was a podcaster. Then after lockdown, podcasting became more part of my life as far as listening to them for sure i just had all all the more and i've really fallen in love with their the ken jennings omnibus one he does it's just it's obscure stories facts histories and uh, yeah. it's it's really compelling so i love that and i kind of feel like i know him
0: in a in, a, he, in an alternate world he is a very popular very tweety history professor at some college
1: <laughs> that's very true i yeah i could see that but it's um Anyway, it's a great podcast and it was a great conversation. Anything else you want to say before we head on? Yeah, I mean,
0: just listen to this, you know, first and and foremost, because John is just a great storyteller uh, and really fun to have on, but also listen to it with an eye toward, um, you know, how a person can build a life in music um, that maybe isn't the one that you imagine when you think of building a life in music because you know make no mistake though he does podcasting though he's done all kinds of stuff he built a life in music first and and i was actually surprised to hear that he still writes songs every day so maybe with any luck we'll get some more music before this is all over
1: absolutely i hope so and uh, well let's just get to the conversation let's do it so but what i want to start with is a pretty simple question john
0: hmm. what is your job <laughs>
2: <clears throat> what is my job you know for for uh for at least 12 years maybe longer i've had a, 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 an incredibly hard time answering that question in any way that doesn't involve you know a paragraph or two up front explaining like how i got to be in a position where i where i can't describe my job
0: isn't that funny because i remember when, briefly, when I became a high school teacher, it was mostly so I would have an answer.
2: Yeah, what yeah.
0: Do do? I'm a yeah. high school teacher. Oh, okay.
2: Well, and depending, it's it, I think a lot of people that do my kind of work have a, a ready answer. They kind of look at the person that's asking the question and tailor an answer. You know, if if I meet somebody out for a walk in my neighborhood where there are a lot of like elderly couples, and they say, "What do you do?" You know, I'll right. say, "I'm a musician." because I think, um, I think my Wikipedia page, unless something, uh, you know, unless I have a fourth act, which I, I really hope I have, my Wikipedia page is always gonna lead with that I was a, or am a musician. Um, it's the it's the thing that I entered into the world as.
0: Are you still writing music?
2: Yep, every day. Um, during the pandemic, I, I picked up the guitar and, and for the first month or two of the pandemic, I was noodling on the guitar like I always do, and I had a realization, oh, this pandemic's gonna last a while, and I'm gonna be stuck here with this guitar, and I am boring the shit out of myself with my playing. I'm so tired of myself. My guitar ideas are 25 years old. I play the same 15 things every time. My hands just don't do anything interesting. And uh, I think it's commonplace as a musician to kind of have that feeling of like, I'm really no, I haven't grown. And I said, I'm stuck in this house. I had better learn to play the guitar. After 35 years, I'd better really concentrate. And I had all these mental ideas about what I could and couldn't do on the guitar. I had all these blocks, you know, my hands can't do that. My, you know, I don't have the dexterity. And I spent the whole pandemic playing the guitar, working at it. And I'm such a much better player than I have ever been. You know, I can do all these things now at 53 years old that if I could have done them at 23 years old, I would have been happier, I guess. I don't, who knows, you know, life is weird. But, um, but when I, when I, when I say I'm a musician, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and, what was true in my decade of doing comedy shows and hosting and podcasting and doing that comic con circuit and the the bookstore circuit you know all the all the things that I did in the 2010s i was always introduced first as a musician and i grew to understand that i was often there although not to play music I was there as the musician, on a panel, uh, in a group. You know, there's the comedian, there's the there's the uh, comic book artist, and there's the musician. And I was slotted into that place, even though what they really wanted me to do was talk for half an hour.
0: <laughs> but and and yet, uh, two years ago when I saw you play with the Western State Hurricanes, Chris was there too. I was
1: there too. Yeah, yeah.
0: nice. How full would the tractor have been if not for Roderick on the line and the podcasts?
2: Well, what's I think curious about my precise age and it's not, it's not my age as much as the age that I was, the, the age, you know, capital A, our age. Mm -hmm. Um, I was late in indie rock, as you know, Larry, Uh, we're, we're, in our fifties, I was a little bit, I was a year younger than Kurt Cobain, right? So I, I, if I'd been a precocious musician, I would have been very active in my twenties during the grunge period. And then presumably by 30, I would have gotten a job at Amazon (laughs) as it was. I didn't put my first record out until I was 32. And so I was peers, contemporaries with uh, the generation that followed. Me in age, right? Death Cab for Cutie and those bands that were my contemporaries, they were all 23 when I was 30. And we were the last era, that indie rock era. Like, I was probably the last musician to ever put out a cassette demo. I was also probably the last indie rock musician that ever got a five figure song placement in a television show, because I was right there in the sweet spot for when Gilmore Girls was giving $30,000 to use 30 seconds of your song in any old episode, right? Two years after the peak, (coughs) when all those music placement people realized that they could just get somebody with a garage band to make a song that sounded like The Strokes for $700 instead of getting the song by the strokes for $70,000. Mm-hmm. You know, that w- it was a brief little, oh, such a beautiful moment when you could really make a great living making independent music. So I was the last one there. Uh, and that's why I have a house. You know, mo- most of my contemporaries don't have a, a house.
0: Which has always been a never ending source of fascination to me. How, do creatives make their money? But that's a separate conversation.
2: Yeah, totally separate. And I was just, I lucked into a couple of those. You know, there was there was a Miller beer ad where they said, you know, we want to use your song. We'll give you $50,000 a side, which was 50000 for the songwriter and $50,000 for, for the song. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm sober and had been at that point for years. I really wrestled with it. Do I really, oh, you know. Oh, it's a what, beer ad. Yeah, what would, what would, you know, what would pavement think if I got a beer ad, you know, it's uh, a, it's like so despicable, but
0: it's a a song about you.
2: Yeah. Right. It's a (laughs) hundred thousand dollars. And so, you know, the integrity wars were raging all around me and I was like, I'm just going to do it. Screw it. You know, I don't care what you think, you know, punk rock girl. No, 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 (laughs) no. And I said, Yes. And they were like, great. And they moved, they moved forward like for another week. And, they were, and then we signed the papers. And then they said, oh, we're going in a different direction. I think we're going to do a country thing. Oh. Uh, but we signed the contract, so we have to pay you.
1: Oh, well, that's so even forward. better, yeah. And I bought a house.
2: <laughs> it's the greatest thing. And the punk rock girl somewhere, she's still mad. I don't know. I, I never met her.
1: Uh, so what year was that?
2: So that was all happening 2005.
0: Hmm.
1: So, and, and probably the
0: good news for you, and we actually talked about this a long time ago, it was better for you to have made that money at age 40 than it would have oh, yeah. been at age 25. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. I, it's, it was better for me that everything happened at age 40 than, it, than if it had happened at age 25. Cause it's I was weird. not, a, I was not in good shape at age
0: 25. Yeah, it's, yeah, I know I was there. It's arguable that it's better for anybody to not get that fame at such a young age. Right. Um, okay. Well, so we haven't really answered the question of what your job is. What, what's your work day like?
2: Well, somewhere along the line, um, you know, the first podcast I ever did, my, my friend Merlin, who lives in San Francisco, who was a long winters fan. And this is the key, right? I was making indie pop at a time when indie pop was, this was before the nerd revolution, right? I think, I think of the mid 2010s as a time when uh, nerds took over the, and and, and I say that I use nerd capital N, they took over all media, but prior to 2010, uh, you know, they were still in the shadows. It was still an epithet. And, in Right in that moment, 2009, indie pop was what computer scientists were still, the, the ones that weren't listening to like uh, techno, you know, the, the, the English majors that were in San Francisco tech were, were listening to indie pop music. Mm-hmm. And so when we would play in San Francisco, the people that would come to the shows would be the people that were, starting Twitter and, um, you know, not, not exactly Facebook, but, but, but that, yeah. that blogger, you know, that generation. And this guy, Merlin Mann, was a super big pop fan. And after the show, he was like, hey, do you guys need a place to crash? And we were, at that point, still very much in the we do need a place to crash era of our careers. And so we became close friends. Every time we were in San Francisco, Merlin was at the show. He introduced us to everybody. And our fan base in San Francisco was really in this kind of Macintosh computer um, subculture. And he and I used to call each other on the phone when I was on tour, and we would invariably end up talking about the Beatles, because Merlin loves the Beatles. I love the Beatles. And uh, if we weren't talking about the Beatles, we would talk about Hitler. The two great topics, the Beatles and Hitler. And one day he said, well, I'm going to start recording our, podca- or our conversations and put them out on the internet as a podcast. And that was an idea that we'd had over the years. Sean Nelson from Harvey Danger and I used to tape record our conversations with a, with a cassette player on the, on, the te- on the table. Because we wanted to, we thought that we could transcribe it and it would be a screenplay like my dinner with Andre. <laughs> we realized that my dinner with Andre was the was the prototypical, was the proto podcast.
1: It was a podcast, I think you're right. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought I of that. It was so old tech of you.
2: And <laughs> we wanted to do that. We wanted we figured like if we just, you know, transcribe 15 conversations, it's a it's a it's a screenplay. We never did it. But I didn't know what a podcast was. I said, yeah, sure, man, I'll, you know, record our conversations, put it on the internet. I, I wasn't actually on the internet at the time, hardly. And he did it and it was not, not like first generation podcast, but second generation. Yeah, It
1: was like 2011, I believe, yeah. from my extended research, extensive research.
0: <laughs> and how strange when it turned out to be a way to make money.
2: Yeah. We didn't think of it as a, as a way to make money or as a way to really, it wasn't, we weren't thinking of it as a way to promote anything. It was just that the internet was fun then. And it felt like a small place. And this was a lark and all of our friends listened to it and it had no plot or reason. It wasn't political. It was just, uh, it was just two guys that liked to talk and it, supposed to be fun
0: it was art of the conversation which was something you know the timing of it was so good because you know art of the conversation is definitely something in danger because Mm -hmm. nobody sees each other face to face anymore no one has time everyone you know communicates in 280 character blocks um and even that sort of podcast is almost in danger now somehow you guys have managed to keep doing it
2: there's too there's too many podcasts although although also not enough there's still room to grow podcasting is still in its early early days i think
0: yeah i'm worried it's going to turn into radio
2: well the the people that are going to turn it into radio are going to do that i've had so many people talk to me about what their vision of podcasting is and i'm like you know what that is radio, radio. but podcasting for i mean i lived through 10 years of people telling me that video was where media was going. And I said, Well, we just do the podcast. It's not, there's no visual component. And people tisk tisked and said, Well, you know, you're a dinosaur. Hmm.
1: And you so people you, lo- I'm <laughs> curious what you guys are, how you're defining what's radio and what's a podcast. What's what is the, the, the line that you cross over when you become to radio or radio? I'm thinking
0: in terms of things that are really slickly produced. Mm. To me, that starts sounding like a radio show, like an NPR show. The thing about these guys is, you know, you were the worst example for someone starting a podcast because I remember going to you and Merlin like, okay, how how do you guys market? What? What kind (laughs) kind of editing do you do? We don't edit. Great. Great. (laughs) <laughs> remember I had gone to a um, this may not make it to the final this final podcast but I had gone to a consultant in the early days of Is It Good for the Jews Ooh, yeah. he told me like yeah you guys are good but you know you really need to tailor to an audience you need yeah, to, tailor it to a up. millennial audience you need to change we were using a, a Camper Van Beethoven song for our theme song. you need to get rid of that then nobody knows what that is and then <laughs> I went to him like so do you tailor like what no <laughs>
2: No, our theme song is some demo that I made that Marilyn was like, oh, can I, can I hear your demos? And I played him a couple of demos and he was like, oh, can we use that as the theme? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Whatever. It's some song I didn't have, didn't have all the lyrics finished to. No, we never did. And we still don't, we don't edit the show. We recorded on Monday at 11 a.m. and it comes out on Monday at 1 (laughs) p.m. Um And we don't prepare in advance. Merlin and I are not uh, alike. You know, we don't, we're simpatico, but we don't think alike and we don't have the same tastes. So there's, um, there's a lot of conversation because we both have, we're both coming at life from very different places. We're not, we're not just sitting and chatting uh, in complete agreement with one another, but we don't argue. It's, you know, it's a, it's a conversation.
0: <clears throat> well, my first podcast was a direct ripoff of Roderick on the line.
2: And a lot of people say that, you know, there are a lot of people that say I can do that. And I think a lot of people can, I myself have a podcast that's a rip off of Roderick on the line <laughs> because Merlin had a co-host who's who liked the show so much that he came to me and said, can I do a show like that with you? And at the time there, It felt like Wild West, like, why not? Why don't I have a show with every one of my friends, which is just this? And we started a podcast called Roadwork.
0: Is that Dan Benjamin?
2: That's Dan Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise of Roadwork was just that Dan was jealous that Merlin had Roderick on the line, and he wanted one too. But Dan's very different than Merlin, so, of course, the show is very different. But we were were giving that show away for four years before, and again – right place at the right time. Our first ads were companies that came to us and said, Hey, can we put an ad on your podcast? And we were like, huh? Why would you want to do that? And they're like, Oh, we just love the show. And you know, can we, we we're starting a company called Squarespace. Would you mind if we put like some, if we bought some ads on your show? And we we're like, "Sure."
0: Again, terrible example for other people. So uh, yeah. for,
2: for the first three years that we took ads, it was all people coming to us and suggesting a figure, you know, what is like $1,500 an ad too little? It, is 2500 enough? And we were like, I guess. Huh.
1: We're still working on that here, yeah, Larry and I. Yeah. Yeah. But we you know we've got the season. We should be able to pull.
0: But so hundred bucks are, or two. You built a podcasting career. Now just yeah. to circle back around, not to go dark, but did your podcasting career or has your podcasting career had a negative impact on your music career? We know what.
2: What I started to say so many hours ago about the, about the Western state Hurricanes show is because of my age and the age of my fans, a lot of my music career and the fans of the long winters, I'm sorry, the fans of the Western state hurricanes and the long winters, they were a pre-internet fan base. My last record came out in 2006. Mm-hmm. And so although we had a lot of fans in a live journal, Kind of, you know, decade or or two younger than me, community. They were still people that learned to love music pre-streaming, pre-Napster, and a lot of them were rock people. They weren't nerds. They weren't coming at media consumption from uh, from the way the nerd community does, which is like endless novelty. Uh, 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 new sincerity, you know, it, we had fans that, that wore, if not leather pants, leather jackets. Hmm. And so those, a lot of those fans continued to be long winters fans and weren't even aware of my Twitter world. I mean, my record label was incredibly suspicious of my Twitter profile all the way to 2016, they were like, you spend all this time on the internet, huh. why aren't you, you know, you could be out touring.
0: But the next day when I was walking down Market Street and I peeked in a restaurant and I saw you surrounded by a horde of fans, holding court, were those Western state hurricane fans or Roderick online fans?
2: In the, the day after the Western state show? Yeah. And I was in San Francisco the next day is what you're saying. No, oh Before oh yo oh Broadway. market in Ballard yeah yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah because I did see you at the airport after that and you were going to Hawaii
2: <laughs> okay, so that is a that's a very curious scenario. Those were all Roderick on the line fans because I talked about Western state hurricanes and the ordeal or the uh, the epic arc of re- rediscovering that record and remixing it and putting it out and playing those shows. I talked about it as a thread of conversation on the podcast. Hmm. And because the podcast has an international audience, those fans independently uh, arranged with one another to fly to Seattle from Australia, England, Germany, Sweden. There were people there from like 11 countries who had all arranged as a fan group around, and I mean, in a fan group that's organized these days on Facebook Hmm. that were podcast fans who had, who were so, um, who were so into the story thread of the making of that record as a, as a, they were consuming it as a story that they wanted to be at the show to see the, you know, the, the resolution. They knew it was just going to be a one-time you know, two, two, two sold out nights. And so they all flew in and they had, I mean, there was a meeting, we had a, we had a meeting the night before the first show and there were 60 people in a restaurant.
1: So how, oh.
0: this is a little off topic, but how is it different to reach fans that way than reaching them from a stage singing?
2: Well, you know the, the having been to a million rock shows as all three of us have, You know, you can be at a rock show at any one of a a thousand levels of engagement, right? You can be at a rock show where you are, you know, where tears are streaming down your face because this is so exactly what you need in your life right now. And you can also be in a rock show, leaning up against the back wall with your arms crossed, making snarky remarks to to your friend about the singer and how dumb this music is and In both instances from the stage, you've both paid the $15 and in the lights from the stage, you look out and it's, you're, you're just, in a way, an audience is a, is a mass, except for those people at the front that you can see their faces and, and in my case, I can't, I can't look at their faces. They, they will throw me completely off. Oh really? I forget all my lyrics, you know, if I look down and make eye contact with with one of those kids on the front row that's singing along, I lose it. I'm, I, have to, I have to stay above, you know, look, look out at, at the horizon. Um, and so, you know, you can feel the energy of a room and when a whole audience is on your side and I love to be on stage. When I'm on stage, I don't want to go on stage. You know, I, I have I have uh, dread of shows, and the and the closer I get to the show, the more and more my dread increases, and it peaks backstage 15 minutes before the show, where I'm like, if the building caught on fire right now, I would, I would rejoice. Please let there be a natural disaster. But I love the I love being on the stage. With a podcast, you don't know really as you as you guys know having a podcast. You don't even know how many listeners you have. Right. There's no way to know. And you don't know who they are. The only way you know your audience is that it is from the ones that contact you, mm-hmm. which is a tiny fraction of the people listening to podcasts. And, and in fact, probably your most dedicated fans are the least likely to ever contact you. Sure. And so you hear from this tiny fraction of people that feel empowered or for whatever reason able to tweet at you or contact you. And you try to take them as a, as some example set of who your fans are, but you know, that's not true. Um, and and podcasting really appeals to introverts. Mm-hmm. And so you get the kind of socially extroverted introverts are the ones that contact you. And socially extroverted introverts are sometimes the, you know, the most difficult people to interact with.
0: Hmm. Uh, Do you ever meet someone who's a podcast fan, tell them a story and realize you already told the story on the podcast? That's happened to you before.
2: The, pro- the problem now that I've been doing, that I've been podcasting for, for over 10 years, I really, really, really hoped I would never repeat a story because that was what my dad always did. Did I ever tell you about the time I defeated the Japanese Empire in World War II? <laughs> and I would, you know, like as he got older, the stories got his his pool of stories shrank down to about 15 stories. Robert F. Kennedy once said to me, Yeah, dad, I know. <laughs> but I have I have listeners who have um, a couple of them have incredibly uh, like adroit powers of cataloging and a lot, a lot of people keep databases. Isn't there a whole Wikipedia? There there are multiple competing Wikipedias (laughs) because different people have different systems of cataloging stories so there's you know there's a guy in sweden who uh he doesn't transcribe the episodes he recapitulates them in his own uh language he in, he interprets the episodes uh-huh. and writes down not a review but he uh, but a synopsis of the episode in his own way in his in his private lexicon and then there's a there's a a, a scientist uh, like a, a, she's a friend now um, this Egyptian physicist who has the ability to remember the timestamp of stories. Someone on the internet will say, "John was saying something about once about a uh, about a rocket-powered bicycle," and in 30 seconds she will tweet at them, "Yeah, that's episode 247." Huh. Right, right about this, right about the 27 minute
1: mark. Well, so. Wow. Well, I was going to ask one other thing about this regard um, too, as far as interacting with your listeners. I know I'm, I'm a big fan of the omnibus. Um, yeah. I've listened to that often over the pandemic. I got, Larry shared it with me at some point, but um, anyway, you guys do obviously have like the Patreon and you have people interacting with you kind of built into the system. Yeah. And is that the first podcast you've done that with um, has yeah. that maybe changed your approach
2: yeah it it is and thank thank goodness that i mean ken jennings and i have very different also personalities and takes on the world our minds work very differently and and that really stands out you know merlin is a polymath and uh, and someone who has a beautiful mind if you if you could study merlin um it's a and and contrast our two the way we think and the way we, we uh, digest information, uh, the contrast is part of it, what's interesting. But Ken Jennings's mind is actually a field of study in our culture. How does Ken Jennings do what he does? You know, To watch him during the GOAT, uh, the Jeopardy GOAT uh, contest, I actually flew down and, and was there in the studio and to see it live is even more awesome than to watch it on television because you realize it's in real time. You know, they do that show in real time. If there's a, if there's a a minute for commercial, it's a minute on the stage and then they reset and go. And he, I've talked to him for a dozen years about how he uses his brain, how his brain works. And, um, he doesn't know, obviously. And I, and I don't know, but, but one of the skill sets that he, that, that he has that I don't is that he's a very organized man. You know, he's, he's, he's like my uncle Jack. He wakes up in the morning and he has a meeting. He you know, he has There's to have breakfast cause he has a meeting at nine.
0: There's a little Felix Unger and Oscar Madison. By yeah. the cast.
2: And I don't, I don't have a meeting, you know, if I, if I can go, if I can go a week without a meeting, I'm, I'm, Uh, Happier, And Ken just his day is ordered. And so we started to interact with our fans and bake that into the show. Hey, write us at a certain Patreon level, you can suggest a show. We'll meet you on a zoom call. After, after our podcast today, I have a zoom call with a supporter of Omnibus. Ken and I will meet with them. I think that, you know, it's someone in Thailand, who's been giving to the show long enough that we'll talk to him for an hour on zoom. But Ken administers it, and if I'd done it well, I've been trying to do it because I started a uh, I started a Patreon, a separate one, during the the Bean Dad episode earlier this year. Um, as a place to kind of ha- let my fans have some privacy, in a way. Uh, but I'm bad at the admin, you know fan support like people particularly fans who want that daily interaction which like I say I came from that generation of rock musicians that never expected anyone would you know like I loved Judas Priest but I never wrote a letter to Rob Halford what would I have said to him and what would I have and did I want him to reply I don't think I did and so I came up in a little bit in that mindset. And I still have it to this day. Like, why would you want to talk to me? I get that you do, but but I wouldn't want to talk to you if I listened to your show, you know? Um, so my fan service is not good. Well, Ken just approaches it methodically. And he sent me an email that's like, there are nine people who have sent us the following 18 things. You need to pick two. <clears throat> Here are the ones I'm picking, you know, like, He's a dad
0: for me. I feel like when you started Omnibus, that's when it was official that you were a professional podcaster. You know, because you at first you you had you had you were part of a network. I remember you telling me about like they've got this thing set up and 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 it's Ken Jennings, who people already know. Um, Is that accurate? Was that a a turning point?
2: Yeah, but uh, Omnibus is hard work
0: must be
2: uh it's hard work because um you know i'm i'm working with ken and he's not going to he's going to ask me questions about the thing i'm supposed to know everything about right like we quiz each other um oh that's interesting well what would you know like what did her father do and you've got to have an answer Hmm.
0: um well it also sometimes you know sometimes you have to drive usually you don't have to drive in a podcast yeah sometimes you have to read live reads, which you didn't have to do before you know it's yeah. a, it's, a, it's a real grown up podcast,
2: yeah, there's a lot more to it and and um the night before we record, I'm always you know really kind of stressed and busy working, and then the day of recording is hard you you uh you work for six hours recording a podcast that requires that much thinking, and by the end you know, I'm hungry. I'm tired. Like it, it's a full day's work. And you think of it as you don't realize that mental work is uses so much energy and so many vitamins until you do a full day like that, where you're like, I just have to be, cause you, it's not just that you're thinking you have to be also be on and you have to be on and informed. And it's, you know, it's, it's easy to be on.
0: Yeah.
2: It's harder to be informed, but it's really hard to be on and informed.
0: Yeah. an interesting exercise for you for someone who can riff for hours.
2: Yeah, and and I think I always fall back to one of the ways that Ken and I think about the way our minds work is I do put everything into the context of a story. Like I I I think everything I know fits into a kind of global architecture of the story of the story of the world as I know it. And so when I learn a new thing, when I learn it, a new factoid or, an, or I see something that interests me, I learn it so that I can stick it in somewhere to a story that I'm already building about X. Because every piece of information, it's very rare that you have to f- start a whole new story, right? Even if you back far enough out to, to say like, well, you know, I have a sense of the story of China and then this story fits in there somewhere. Ken his uh his mind works much more like, um, like a card catalog, you know, or like a library. And he doesn't he doesn't think of all that information as all he can pull stuff out and connect it, but he doesn't frame it as a story.
0: That's probably the biggest difference between you two. But
2: And Merlin too. He doesn't think of it as stories. It's all it's discreet, you know? And for me, there's nothing, there's nothing that I can't draw back a little bit and find a connection to something else.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I remember listening to, I don't know which Roderick on the line it was, but it was fairly recently and realizing at the end of it, because you know, I, I don't know if you guys do any preparation, but you had framed whatever Merlin had brought up in the first five minutes of the conversation so perfectly as a story with a beginning, a middle and an end. And I didn't realize you were doing it till you got to the end. And I was like, man, that's some good storytelling.
2: Yeah. Well, and there's no preparation on Roderick on the line. And I've come to realize it's just the architecture of the way my mind works. You know, we have these minds Mm -hmm. that are, that's this taric incognita. How are we, how do they work? They're they're And they are so different from one another. And I don't, I, Just putting it together over the course of my lifetime. That oh, I'm just trying to narrate.
0: Well, I'm going to take your mind back to 1993 now. Okay. Okay. We set the way back machine. Setting the way back machine. I have a full head of hair. You're the first person telling me it's going. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) You did. You had a
2: lot of hair. You did. So much hair. Dark, thick. Yeah.
0: Back then, I was telling Chris, I don't remember. You having the ambition of wanting to be a rock star, but was that your ambition back then?
2: No. No, I I always thought I would be.
0: Um,
2: you know, I came up in that in that WASPy media world of the nineteen seventies, where I thought that I was going to be a journalist or a writer, a, a, a you know somebody that worked at the Washington Post.
0: So what changed?
2: Well, I moved to Seattle, and it was just coincidentally right at the, you know, nine months before um, everything started. There, not it had all been in motion for years, as you guys know. But right before the three big records of nineteen ninety one came out, so I was there nine months before that. So I just barely had the ability, had that feeling of like, what is happening, before everything c- kicked off.
0: So how did you pierce that? If you got there, you said earlier, you know, you weren't really part of that. You were part of the next generation of all the guys who were younger but by the time you put out an album, you seem to already know a lot of people who could help you, who could play on it, who could produce it. How did you do that? Just being a general man about town?
2: Yeah, I I um I think I was there in the scene and watching it all happen. And I got a I got a job at a club right away just a you know 22-year-old working in a bar, but it just happened to be the off-ramp where all the shows were happening. Yeah. And I, I remember distinctly having a feeling night after night watching three bands, night after night, and they were almost all terrible, terrible. And just thinking like... Because it was a very rare situation, right? Most of the time, if you have a bill with three terrible bands there are going to be 60 people in the crowd. But in the spring of 1991 in Seattle, you could have three terrible bands at the off-ramp and there would be 900 people in the bar and they would be losing their minds because it was just a moment, you know? It was a crazy moment. And I remember watching these bands and going, these bands are terrible and there are 900 people losing their minds. This is a lot easier than it looks.
1: (laughs) So I'm curious that what, so you're there in 1990, 91, and, but the Western state hurricanes, um, I don't believe were founded or established until 1998. So yeah. yeah what was that kind of the in-between time like for you? Like when Larry knew you at the temp agency. <laughs> well, I was, you
2: know, I was very enamored with a lot of those American stories and, and I come from a long line of Welsh alcoholics and I knew from the time I was 15, that alcoholism was a, was a big component of, um, what was going to happen to me. Right. My brother was a chronic alcoholic. My father was one, his father was one and my dad got sober in the sixties. My brother never did. You know, my eldest brother, uh, was one of those alcoholics that lived to a ripe old age sowing bitterness everywhere he went. I mean, you know, for many years he grew his fingernails till they were four inches long because he was just a, you know, he was a troll. And at 15, I knew this was in my future. I mean, the first time I had a drink, I was like, okay, okay, here we go. And by the time I was in my early twenties, I'd done quite a bit of study <laughs> of you know, drugs, alcohol, what it's going, what I, what I suspect it's going to do to me, what the course of my life is going to be. And I had a chance to think about it before I became a chronic enough that I, that it didn't take me to by surprise. You know, years later, I'd be in AA meetings and I'd hear these people talk and, and it was clear that their drug and alcohol addiction came as a complete surprise to them. They were in denial, like so many alcoholics are. Um, I never was. You know, I was told I was an alcoholic before I ever had a drink. Mm. And so by the time I was 22, I'd kind of, I mean, by then I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, but I also understood that it was going to be a fact of my life, but it didn't have to be the thing. It didn't have to be the defining thing. It didn't have to kill me. And so, I you can't say that I was careful exactly because I was pretty uncareful. Uh, I but I threw I threw myself into drugs knowingly, like I'm going to do this. I'm going to get really really addicted to drugs. And in the grunge moment, that also seemed like a very popular strategy. (laughs) And, um, and I wasn't imitating. I had, I had thrown myself into it, you know, in 1986, I had made this commitment to myself, like you're gonna, you're gonna have some bad years, but it's not going to be the end. You just have to do it. You know, you can't not because the alternative is, uh, well, there isn't an alternative for, for you. So you just have to find a, you have to find a path. And so for most of my twenties, I, um, I was on drugs and trying to have it not kill me. And I followed this, this path through it. And it was crazy how it resulted in all the things, even, even with a sort of careful attention to it. I didn't have, I ended up, without home. I ended up without, um, nutrition. I ended up going to a, to a third location with, uh, not even a hippie with, you know, like first go to third location with a hippie and then with a meth hippie and then leave the hippie out. And it's just, you know, with a meth dealer and then with a meth dealer's friend. And I, uh, I wasn't trying to, to go there but when i when i got there and i remember very distinctly uh a, being in a place where it was like wow you know here it is like i'm not a tourist here mm. this is my new home and uh and i see i see the there there isn't a path back right now you know, there's not, um, I'm sick and, uh, I was able to get sober there in the, in my late twenties. But so that whole period between realizing like, wow, rock music is, is fun. And, uh, and it feels, it feels doable. And then actually coming out the other side of the, of the drug experience By the time I did that, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of other options. I didn't have a college degree. I didn't. I certainly wasn't going to get a job at the Washington Post in that condition. (laughs)
0: But you did eventually get a college degree.
2: Eventually, eventually, thirty years I spent at the University of Washington. I got my. I finally got my bachelor's degree in two thousand
1: and fifteen. Nice work. That's awesome. Yeah. Um,
2: Oh, but by that time, you know, having been a, a street. Addict. I knew everybody in Seattle because I'm. Mm. I'm, uh, and partly it is that even then, um, I traded on my personality. I didn't have any money, and you always have this question: How do people with no money get drugs? Well, you know, you got to suck somebody's dick, sure. and my way of doing that was was telling stories, performing. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Naked.
0: Um, David Thulis,
2: David Thulis great, uh, career defining role. I, uh, I was a character, you know, a professional drug character on the streets.
0: That just made me think of like the old West, the rummy dance, rummy.
2: That's right. And, and, and it was humiliating, you know, for the last several years, just realizing like I would walk into these rooms, everybody in the room would look and they would go, Oh, here he is, you know? Okay, put on a show and we'll give you a bag. Hmm. Uh it's it, it was awful. You know, it was it really it was prostituting. It felt like I had a I had a talent, a God given talent to entertain people, and I was using it to get high.
0: So were you sober by the time you started Bun Family Players?
2: I started the Bun Family Players our first six months of practice. I was not sober, and it was a thing where the practice space the instruments the the whole concept of the band was being managed by other people and i had bit you know and they were like finding a lead singer is the hardest part of of putting a band really uh, finding a good one and the people that were putting this band together i mean one of them was a high school friend of mine and he said i know a guy and you know this type of thing so i and you gave me my first guitar larry
0: i did Um, terrible
2: guitar, it was a terrible guitar. And I was, and, and I showed up at this practice with this terrible, and I had been in a couple of bands in this way, right? Where people I was doing drugs with who were wanted to start a band. They were like, Hey, the guy, you know, the, the guy in the jester hat, let's get him to be the singer. I was actually in a band with Jim Roth who ended up in built to spill. Um, Jim Roth was the second guitar player in built to spill. And we were in a band together where I was the lead singer, and my job was to dance around with my jingle stick.
0: So, <laughs> when did it become an ambition of yours? Hmm.
2: I've thought about that a lot because now at 53, I'm trying to reconnect with ambition. Hmm. A lot of the things that have happened to me in life, I was in a lucky place at a lucky time. I did, you know, just kind of stand there when when people said, can we advertise on your podcast? You know, all these things where if I had planned it, I couldn't, have. I couldn't have done it if I'd had a plan. And, and what I had was just a willingness every day to wake up and say, even, even suffering from depression, even um, on drugs, I woke up every morning and said, well, probably something good's gonna happen today. You know, I never started the day thinking Another shit day in a shit world. Hmm. I certainly had that voice in my head, but my my first thought every day is like, I bet you everything's going to work out. Um, But now, trying to think back to the time when I was working, you know, I was sober, I was writing songs, I was working 18 hours a day on my band, And we were getting paid a hundred dollars for a show if we were lucky. (laughs) And somehow I, I got a van and kept a band together and got a record label and went on tour and did everything associated with that. I, I always tour managed us. I never hired anybody to do it. We did, European tours, three, three a year, three European tours a year for seven years, me doing all the driving and the tour managing and all the everything, you know, the interviews and the, and what was driving me? You know, I don't know. It wasn't that I had a plan because I never did. It was just that I felt like everything that came up, I could handle. And when the stuff started to stack up, I just said, I can do it.
0: I can do it. So I was wondering because we are getting close to running out of time here. Um, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, you know, when all said and done, I, I was reading something I forget where that had compared you. You were saying something about how you didn't get big like the Decemberists or whatever other band. Yeah, would that have been a preferable path for you? You know, would or would would twenty, you know, thirty year old John look at what you've done and how you've used. Music as a springboard while never losing touch with music would look at that and go, yeah, this is a pretty good route I, I got for myself.
2: I mean, so many of the things that define my career weren't things that existed when I was 20. There wasn't the ability to be an independent music, musician that toured the world and put out records and had success at the level of a prosperous dentist. You know, in 1986, we all believed that. I mean, there were plenty of rock stars that had one hit and then fell into uh, that ended up. I mean, even Mark Mothersbaugh was working in an office at some point. Um, there were these these tragic arcs of the music business. But the but the idea that you could just achieve a level of fame where in some rooms I walk into and everybody turns and goes, he's here. And in other rooms I walk into, and it's like the line starts over there, Mr. And most rooms in the world.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Cause I was thinking, there's probably going to be a few people who this and go, who, who is this guy?
2: Oh, a lot of people will be. Hmm. Yes. Who's this Have, guy?
0: I've never heard of this guy. Wait, yeah. he's done all this. It
2: happens all the time. I mean, I, I, I went to a psychologist the other day. Uh, trying to find a new psychologist, and he's a guy in his sixties, and he was like, "Yeah, I listened to KEXP all through the '90s and 2000s," and I was like, "Well, you've definitely heard my music." And he was like, "Can't quite place the name though," and I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's fairly common. Long winters. It's a little, it's a little bit of an anonymous name." You're
1: like, "Yeah, King <laughs> Neptune ran for C. I was gonna say, "You to call her King <laughs> Neptune, yeah." So, and- but, but,
2: but the 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 question of like. I wished that I or I wish that I'd had more success, and fame, because it's validating. Mm. Um, when I listen to a new pornographer's record, and when I think about uh, Carl and his creative arc, and, or I think of Colin Malloy, I mean I know uh, I know where they live, I know what their family lives are like, even, and they're not that much different from mine in the sense of material prosperity, or, you know, position in life. But I feel like they had more validation from the world as, as, you know, beautiful people, or, you know, uh, thing people who had made things that really helped people, because they made things that helped me. But I spent uh, quite a bit of time on the road with Ted Leo. And Ted had always what I considered to be the level of fame and success that was just right above mine. Right, the Decemberists went into a whole other league, where the Decemberists can even today, without a new record out, they could go around and tour and play 2,000 seat rooms everywhere they went, and you know they just kind of achieved an escape velocity, and the new pornographers can go around and play seven to nine hundred seat rooms or thousand seaters everywhere they go. But Ted and the pharmacists, when we were contemporaries and when we were playing 400 seat rooms, he was playing 500 seat rooms. You know, it was just right there. Notch above just a tiny notch and talking to Ted about this stuff a lot. Ted feels exactly the same way that I do that. If he was just a little bit, more and I know that's got to be how Carl Newman feels you know there's just there's it's 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 um it's a thing that 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 gnaws at me but it it's but it's stupid to let it
1: So it's like you and Ken Jennings, you have not thrown out the first pitch yet at a Mariners game, I don't think, but he has.
2: (laughs) So this year, Ken did it. And then our friend Maria Semple, who wrote um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, that, you know, she watched Ken do it. And she was like, I want to do that. And, you know, of course, she's a Where'd You Go, Bernadette is a pretty major book. And so Ken was like, let me talk to my guy. And so then she threw out the first pitch and then her husband George Meyer who was one of the simpsons original kind of simpsons geniuses uh maria said well why don't we get george to throw out the first pitch so then george did and then they all turned and looked at me and i was like am i going to be the next one to throw out a first pitch and everybody kind of went well
0: no oh, come I on i don't <laughs> i don't know no I don't know. big right-hander I mean,
2: come on yeah i mean i'm the i'm the only one of the three that could get it over the plate
0: <laughs> well i have something to tell you john I'm yes first pitch next week
2: congratulations <laughs> of the of the, uh, the ashland oregon mud I mean,
0: chickens no. <laughs> yes the... i'd be afraid to i mean i think it's I, I think it's not as easy as it looks
1: no it's a lot harder than it looks it's, yeah you could do it in stratomatic larry i
0: yeah. could so as we ride off into the sunset um I've been thinking about this for the last 10 minutes as you've been talking about the period between 93 and 2021. How do you take this into your 60s and 70s? What does that look like?
2: Well, you know, earlier this year, at the very beginning of the year, I became the focus of an internet shitstorm. Right. And it is the rare moment in a person's life where a single event a single sort of 3 day long tempest in a teapot uh absolutely changed the course of my career and probably not certainly not in the way that that the people that were were uh m- you know most avid, avidly or vociferously trying to change the course of my career you know the fun of canceling somebody is hoping that they never that they just go die right destroyed. yeah yeah there were a lot of a lot of people in that 3 day period that just really were they would not be satisfied unless I was destroyed. But it was a reckoning for me because I had spent the last 10 years very online. Right? The internet was where I did my business and where I did my living. I had real friends there. You know, it's not a thing where you um uh, people want to say like, well, if your friends abandon you, then they're not your real friends. But no, they were my real friends. I vacationed with my internet friends. We, I went to their homes and they came to mine. I mean, we were, I was very, very close with a a dozen people who, um, whose names you would recognize that we met on the internet and our lives were lived on the internet. I lived and died by the internet and it started on Twitter. And then it went to all the other media and I got invited to real life things and, and had a whole career. And this was the part between music and podcasting where I had this third career where I was just invited to things, invited to things where I would be on a stage and my part of the show would be five to 10 minutes in the middle. And on either side of me, there would be, you know, I did a show where the, where the lineup was Eric Bagosian, Sarah Vowell, David Byrne, you know, like, and I'm on that bill and I'm there for what reason, you know, talk about people listening to your show and going, who is this guy? People at the Beacon Theater in New York were like, who is this guy? I'm here to see David Byrne, Eric Bagosian. He's still alive. And I did that for a decade. And then I was the subject of, a, of an internet uh, shitstorm, and that world went away. And it went away all at once because the people that live there live by the laws of that place. And the laws of that place are unique to it. They're not the laws of the world. And so someone that was my friend for over a decade had to do the math as thousands of people were tweeting at them saying, how dare you be friends with this person? If you're friends with this person, I will stop buying your albums. I will stop listening to your podcasts. I had a whole host of people that had to make that uh, calculation in the moment under tremendous stress. Do I defend my friend because I know he's, I know that this is a, uh, that this storm is inaccurate. He's not any of these things. He's not an anti-Semite. He's not a child abuser. He's not a racist. He's not any of these things. Because I've lived with this man, I know he's not a child abuser. My, his daughter grew up in my house. Or do I, do I denounce him in some way or another to get the, the mob off of me?
0: Because they literally couldn't afford to not denounce you.
2: Yeah, because it was their careers. Uh, And the thing is, we all can look at these moments and know, actually, no, it's three to five days. All you have to do is survive it. Three to five days later, you've got that tiny fraction, that that percentage of 1% who are actually online screaming at people. That's not the mass. That's not the, those aren't the people. That's a tiny, very vocal fraction. But when you're sitting on Twitter every day, when Twitter is your life, and you get 50 tweets in an hour, you don't think, oh, this is just 50 people out of 500,000 people that listen to my show. No, you think those 50 people represent the silent majority because they're so loud. And so a lot of my friends and a lot of those shows that I'd been doing those those uh, that whole life, it all went away in, in three days. Because once you denounce your friend online yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to walk that back. And a lot of doors closed for me in that moment, because once the door closes, you can't reopen it. You know, you, none of those people are ever going to say, hey, we're inviting John back because we made a mistake. It's just not how that, that mob thing works. You know, the presumption is, it's just like, if she if she floats she's a witch if she drowns she wasn't one huh. the presumption is even though john we know him to be innocent of all charges the fact that that happened to him means that he probably deserved it
0: this is not humanity's finest moment
2: no and so i'm here 53 years old and i have it's not a thing that like in in the past where i just sort of slide into the next cool thing what happened oh i guess i'm you know I guess I live on this boat now. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a cold line. What do I do now? And what do I do now in light of the fact that I spent 10, 20, 30 years cultivating friends and a reputation, and now there's an asterisk by some of that, right? I mean, the long, and that was when I started my Patreon it was because people were contacting me going, I don't want to abandon you. And I started a Patreon and said, Hey, this is a place, you know, it's got a message board, come on over. And there was this extremely encouraging and lovely flood of people. And what's crazy is that none of the three podcasts that survived it, none of them lost a single listener,
0: Hmm.
2: you know, you would think, given, and this is, this kind of proves the the idea. You would think, given the the how angry people were, that, that my shows would have, you know, would have would have lost listeners in droves, but it didn't happen. You know, um, not even a percentage point. So that gave me some clarity too. And part of the clarity is that the internet isn't life. You know, Twitter isn't the real world. Those, those communities which feel like all we have aren't, they aren't. Um, and, um, and you can live not on the internet. But it's something I'm, st- I'm still trying to learn how to do. <laughs>
0: and do you, I mean, knowing what you know about the real impact of that incident on your listenership, et cetera. How does that make you feel about the people who ran, You know, your friends who ran for the Hills? I mean, do you have to respect their perception that, uh uh-oh, I can't risk this?
2: It's so awful. It's so awful when it
0: happens. I
2: mean, Larry, people came after you, didn't they?
0: Yeah. I had my own thing a little bit later than that, which was much smaller and equally stupid. But yeah, I had, yeah. There was just a, a little bit, because I am the Jew.
2: Yeah, right. How can you be friends with this guy, Larry? He's such an anti-Semite. And you're like, well, do you? I don't know if you know how we talk I, to each other.
0: I told Chris, I jumped in on one thing. Well, he didn't seem like an anti-Semite when he was on my podcast. He's good for the Jews. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he didn't seem like an anti-Semite at the head of my Seder table.
0: <laughs> we checked, really. <laughs> um, oh.
2: so, no, I... When I, I mean, what it is, is it's a crazy situation in, in midlife to, I mean, I have a tremendous empathy for those people, but also our friendship ended that day. Mm. There isn't coming back from it. Really there, there would be, except that we all were show business people. It's all about show business. And if I'm not in show business with them, because they made a public statement saying I, that I will no longer work with him. Um, well then, you know, then it's just like, what are we going to do? Send emails every couple, every six months. Like we used to, like, like you you do with your high school friend. Uh,
0: yeah. So,
2: so what it is, is it's a brokenheartedness, right? I mean, I'm, I lost, uh, a lot in it emotionally because I had all these people that, that really constituted uh, like a lovely world. And they all, I mean, not all, right? Ken Jennings stuck up for me, Peter Sagal, uh, Carl Newman, Amy Mann, you know, there were, there were enough of those people that, that said, no, I'm not, Michael Ian Black, you know, people that said, no, I'm not, I don't accept this. But a lot, a lot of people even closer to me than they were
0: I'm going to ask you one more thing about it, then we got to close. I will have a okay. watch after this. But I mean, to me, the thing that must have been the most shocking was that you thought you were just doing a bit.
2: I was just doing a bit. You know? Mm-hmm. It was. It was Wait, just a bit.
0: We have a, we have a mutual friend who right now is being taken to task in Texas for being a pedophile. One of his books uh, has gay characters in it that are kids. They're not gay. Anyways.
1: They're, they're like, a, yeah. High school, age, or this time, High school well, age, early 20s, maybe. Somebody yeah.
0: saw it and said, this guy's a pedophile and just went after him.
1: Yeah. And trying to ban the book. He was books, asking the same the thing. Like,
0: you were just writing a book. You had no idea. How shocking was it that this is the response you got? I mean, I imagine when you're doing those tweets, you were probably tweaking going, this is a little bit funnier. Yeah, this makes it a little bit funnier.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my. Uh, my internet persona. It's why I didn't lose any podcast listeners. Cause they're with me every week and they know part of my bit is that I'm one of those dads. That's like, all right, now, you know, we're going to eat this, this, we're going to eat this spaghetti dinner, but dry, you know, like we're going to eat these pieces of spaghetti uncooked one at a time. What do you think about that? That's when I was on the wagon train, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the gag. Yes. Um And And even out of context, it's funny to people unless they're being told it's not funny. And at the point that they're being told it's not funny, then their eyes, you know, then a a gauze comes down and they only can see it the way they're being told to see it.
0: And then what's it like when you realize,
1: oh my God?
2: Oh, well, you know, because one of the things that exacerbated the problem is that my another part of my online persona is when people would come to me and say, Hey, you know, when you, when you say that, that all birds poop on your car, you know, not all birds. When people would do that to me on Twitter, I would always say, why don't you go fuck off? Like go take a flying fuck at a rolling donut. You ding dong. Like, why are you talking to me? I'm Rob Halford. If you don't have something smart to say go back into your 34 follower hole, you dork. Hmm. And so for the first six hours of the, you know, the first 12 hours of uh, after I posted it, most of the replies were, ha ha ha, you're such a black, good dad. We love you. Signed your fans. And the first few people that were like, death constitutes child abuse. Hmm. I, I went and looked at all of their uh, bios and they were they were this little cluster of people from Kentucky. And I was like, oh, this got retweeted by somebody who thought it was funny and it found some purchase in a community in Kentucky of probably QAnon moms who believe that all liberals are eating children. And so my replies to them were like, well, you're an idiot, you know, go eat shit and die. In a funny way, eat shit and die in a funny way. That's but, funny. but that fueled the narrative that not only was I a child abusing monster, but I also was not sensitive to people who then came to me and said, this is triggering, your story is triggering my childhood abuse. And my replies to that were like, well, that sounds like something you should see a psychologist about. Which didn't and, make it better. No, it didn't make it better. <laughs> and so by the time I realized that it had... Because, you know, for that three days, I mean, that was that was the day that Trump called the Georgia secretary of state and told him to find 50,000 extra ballots that he needed. And yet Bean Dad was still the number one trending topic on Twitter. Really? Trump stealing the election was third down. The first three trending topics on Twitter were were hashtag Bean Dad, hashtag, you know beans, whatever. It was all three of the top three.
0: It's just so it's, well, I'll, I'll talk to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> recording,
2: so I did, punched out, you know, I punched yeah. out of the internet at that point and I haven't been back really.
0: But so, okay. So the last thing I'm going to ask you then, because we're way over time. The last time I talked to you, you were flirting with the idea. and
2: people You knew we would were, be uh, out over time on this. I like, know. I'm,
0: I'm trying to tell Chris, it. it's not right. going 40 minutes. Um, you were flirting with the idea and there were people encouraging you to do this of writing a book about your trip to Europe. Yeah. Any movement on that?
2: Yeah. I'm working on it. You know, it's one of the things that I realized uh after this whole thing uh, that I needed to, I needed to actively find a new thing to do into my sixties and seventies and that, that thing had always probably been writing. I've always been a writer and, um, And writing is a thing that you can do in your 60s and 70s. And so naturally, I went back to this book that's been a 20-year albatross around my neck. And I'm working at it pretty diligently. And one of the things I'm doing is that uh, that aforementioned Egyptian physicist friend who can timestamp stories has been going back through the podcasts and finding every instance where I told a story about the walk and transcribing the story. And now we're putting those stories, which are very lively, you know, the voice is very lively because it's a spoken story. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm imp- improvising it. I'm, uh, you know, I'm surfing that storytelling way. Mm-hmm. The language is so, it, it's such a contrast to the way that I wrote 20 years ago, which was much more kind of mannered. Mm-hmm. And in, in putting those stories into the manuscript, it's like, Oh wow. It's, it's, uh, it's a very different book now.
0: Find your real voice.
2: Yeah. So I'm, um, so then, you know, it's very easy to bleed that voice over in a diff in a new edit to the stories on either side where it's like, you know, this is how I talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, a, it's, it, the last few months have been a really exciting project because I am writing and I'm working on this story and it's a different story now.
1: Yeah, it's pretty fun on Omnibus to have heard lots of those stories and uh, over the course of the last few months and Ken likes to, you know, kind of jab you about. When he that, does. It comes up. Yeah, so. He
2: does. He's like, oh, wait a minute. You walked across Europe? Tell me more.
1: <laughs> that seems like something, I
0: don't know, Ken, but it seems like something that would be the most absurd thing he's ever heard.
2: Yeah. I mean, there, I think there are a lot of people in my life that, that, uh, because that, that's an idea, you know, go like walk by yourself across Europe with no money is a thing that harkens back to the, that 16 year old self, um, an incautious version of myself that feels like there's other stuff in the world to find. And most of the people in my, in my world, uh, most of the people you meet aren't gonna do a thing like that. And they're also gonna hear the story and they're gonna, they're gonna wanna hear that you had a good time. Was it fun? And it's like, no, it was not fun. Are you kidding me? It was awful. And at that point, I think a lot of people, uh, their eyes glaze over because they're like, well, then I don't, why the hell would you do a thing? Why would you walk 3000 miles? If it wasn't
0: fun. Hero's journey. Yeah. All right, John, we got to wrap it up. Thank you so much. You're a, one of my favorite storytellers. And I got to hear something today in the middle of my day. It's awesome. Thanks,
2: Larry. I, I, uh, I always love seeing you. And it's, it, you know, sometimes we go a long time. Sometimes it's not so long. Let's keep yeah. it not so long.
0: Yeah, um, and I know great. you're not on the internet, but you do have a Patreon you, we can send people to if you tell us where it is.
2: Yeah, it's it's patreon.com slash John Roderick. And it's, yeah, there's lots of, there are a couple of secret podcasts that I've done there. Um, there's one with my sister called Road Rage, where she and I talk about uh, how other drivers are a window into... The decline and fall, but also a window into our own pathologies, because we both respond to other drivers in varying ways. Uh, and those are those are all at uh, Patreon.com/slash John Roderick.
1: Well, awesome, yeah! Thanks so much for coming on, and uh, maybe we'll get you to Boise, Idaho, for our my my pitch to every guest, just about. Five. Well, Christian,
2: I've always wanted to come to your festival from the from the very beginning. A lot of my friends have played it.
1: Yeah, we you, you should get it. I don't know. We can we can get you in. I don't know. At least on the storyboard side of things, we can. But.
2: Yeah, storyboard is such a cool thing. But you know, I don't I don't want to make any of your other guests uncomfortable.
1: Huh. Oh, we like to do that. Larry, Larry already <laughs> does, so we're fine. I don't okay. make anyone uncomfortable. No, stuff. you don't. That's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's lots lots cooking, so we'll be in touch for sure. All right, great. Fun, fun to see you here
0: and we are back i am out of breath just listening to that great barrage of words we just shared so we're not going to take much more of your time here i don't think there's much more to add i hope you enjoyed it i know i did let's get to the part where we thank all the people who made this possible
1: that's right i want to thank our man brett battistane who is the the main force behind eavesdrop Studios where we do a lot of our recording in normal times and also uh, he does a lot of the production work with jared bostrom and that's uh at ease that's e-a-s-e dash drop.com
0: i also like to thank the story forward team some of yeah. those people you just mentioned plus a few more i
1: imagine yeah we have Mackenzie heilman we have joe davidson we have jared bostrom who i did mention and then we have a couple of tangential folks bringing in after this year's story forward in march
0: mm. Uh, and, and I'd like to thank John for spending some time uh, with us. If you'd like to interact with Story Forward, you can do that in a number of ways. You can go to our Facebook page, Story Forward. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Story Forward. Uh, we're still working on revving up the other social media platforms, because you we know- We
1: Instagram, we have Instagram. We so do. Yes. Oh, right, is it at Story Forward? I'm pretty darn sure. Yeah, I think It it sure is. An underscore in there too. But you can just put storyboard in and you'll find it. We'll search for storyboard. We'll be better at this next time. Promise. We're in mid-season form.
0: Uh, And as for me, you can find me at that, Larry Rosen. That is Instagram and Twitter if you... I don't know. I don't know what you would hear. If you follow me, you'll, you'll see pictures of where I live, basically.
1: Maybe in light of John's story, maybe one little anecdote you always say is don't try to be funny on Twitter. That's, that's your formula. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's our advice that, for you out there today. People. That is our <laughs> advice. That is sound advice. So until uh,
0: next time, uh, keep moving that story forward. That yeah, sounds like a good plan.